You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to episode 184 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last show, as y'all recall, we set the stage for the Battle of South Mountain, which was fought on Sunday, September 14, 1862. And now we want to take this episode to start to talk about the fighting at South Mountain, because the battle that day was an important milepost along the road that takes us up to Antietam. Exactly. So just to start off with a quick review, but Robert E. Lee has invaded Maryland with an eye to perhaps even heading up into Pennsylvania. But his goal, as ever, was to draw the Union Army into a decisive battle. So to pull the Yankees away from their Washington base, Lee marched west from Frederick across South Mountain to Boonesboro, and then he divided his army. Lee wanted to open up a new line of communication and supply through the Shenandoah Valley, so he sent some of his army south to deal with the two enemy outposts at Martinsburg and Harper's Ferry, and that operation would be under the overall command of Stonewall Jackson. In the meantime, Lee and James Longstreet took another part of the Confederate Army and headed north to Hagerstown. Lee left behind D.H. Hill's division at Boonesboro and gave Jeb Stuart's cavalry the job of watching the gaps over South Mountain. As we said last time, dividing his army like that was a gamble, but one that Lee felt confident in taking because he thought that time was on his side. Yes, the Yankees had already marched from Washington, but they were moving slowly, with all the caution that Lee had come to expect from the federal commander, George McClellan. Robert E. Lee was willing to take the risk of dividing his army because he assumed McClellan would stay true to form, that is, being overly cautious and moving slowly. And besides, the opposing armies would be separated by the substantial barrier of South Mountain, with its gap sealed off from probing Yankees by Jeb Stuart's cavalry. Lee reasoned that by the time Little Max sorted out what was going on, the Army of Northern Virginia would be reunited, its new supply line would be secure, and preparations would have started for the next and decisive phase of the campaign. But then, on September 13th, the lost order fell into McClellan's hands. And while Little Mac failed to move with the speed that was needed to take full advantage of that incredible piece of good luck, he nevertheless did come up with a plan for the Army of the Potomac to cross over South Mountain and fall upon Lee's divided army. 
And in the interest of fairness, we should probably point out that there have been some people who haven't judged McClellan so harshly with regard to his response to finding the lost order. But Stephen Sears definitely isn't one of those people. In that article, we've already mentioned about the lost order in the winter 2016 issue of the Civil War Monitor. Sears doesn't pull any punches in saying that Little Mac wasted the golden opportunity that was presented to him to inflict a crushing defeat on Lee's army. An alternate viewpoint, however, can be found in an article about McClellan and the Lost Order that's in the October 2012 issue of Civil War Times. The title of that article is Little Mac Didn't Doddle, and, well, that pretty much sums up that author's conclusion. At any rate, we've already indicated which side of that debate we come down on, and regardless of whatever judgment you make about McClellan's response, the fact of the matter is that the clock began ticking for him when he was handed the lost order at noon on September 13th. Actually, from that point on, for both Little Mac and Robert E. Lee, the clock was ticking. Would McClellan move quickly enough in storming over South Mountain to fall upon the rebel army while it was divided and defeated in detail, or would Lee somehow gain the time he needed to reunite his army and stave off disaster? Before moving on, we just wanted to insert a disclaimer here, and it's that we're only going to be talking about the fall of Harper's Ferry in very broad brushstrokes, even though that particular part of the Antietam campaign is a fascinating story in its own right. Yeah, it is, which is why we do plan on making what all happened at Harper's Ferry the subject of probably a couple of members' episodes at some point. But for right now, in the interest of keeping the main storyline moving along toward Antietam, we will only talk about what happened down at Harper's Ferry in very general terms. Okay, so there you go. Now back to regularly scheduled programming. The South Mountain Range, west of Frederick, Maryland, runs generally north-south from the Potomac River up into Pennsylvania. As we mentioned last time, rather than towering mountain peaks, it was really more a ridge or a line of steep hills. But nevertheless, the South Mountain Range, topping out at around 1,300 feet, was enough of a barrier that it could only be crossed by an army at several passes or gaps. If you were a soldier marching west out of Frederick, you would come to Middletown, and then you would cross South Mountain on the National Road at Turner's Gap. The National Road was a macadamized turnpike that spanned the mountain and would take you over to Boonesboro in the Cumberland Valley. Less than a mile southwest of Turner's Gap was a smaller pass, Fox's Gap, where the old Sharpsburg Road crossed the mountain. And then, about six miles south of Turner's Gap was Crampton's Gap, where the Burkittsville Road crossed the mountain. Burkittsville was a small hamlet on the eastern edge of South Mountain. But once you crossed west over the mountain at Crampton's Gap, you would find yourself in Pleasant Valley, which was the back door to Harper's Ferry. 
As we said last time, George McClellan had continued his old habit of overestimating the size of the enemy force he was facing. And although the lost orders said nothing about numbers, it did make clear that Lee had divided his army, and Little Mac knew that if it remained divided on the other side of South Mountain, then he could fall upon it and defeat it in detail. That is, he could defeat the scattered and vulnerable elements of Lee's army before they could reunite. The lost order had fallen into McClellan's hands at noon on Saturday, September 13th, and by that evening McClellan had formed his plan of attack. The bulk of the Army of the Potomac would march west from Frederick toward Turner's Gap. Ambrose Burnside's right wing would lead the way, spearheaded by Jesse Reno's Ninth Corps, with Joseph Hooker's First Corps following. Edwin Sumner's center wing would back up Burnside. And so the bulk of the Army of the Potomac would march west from Frederick, headed for Turner's Gap, and toward Longstreet's part of the Rebel Army, which Little Mac assumed was still at Boonesboro. But McClellan didn't know that Lee had already deviated from his plan by having Longstreet move up to Hagerstown, leaving only D.H. Hill's division at Boonesboro as the Army's rear guard. Right. So Little Mac believed Longstreet was at Boonesboro, and he actually mistakenly thought that part of the rebel army numbered about 60,000 men. McClellan didn't know if Longstreet would remain at Boonesboro or would defend South Mountain at Turner's Gap. But either way, it didn't matter, because McClellan only wanted to keep Longstreet occupied while the Army of the Potomac's 6th Corps under William Franklin delivered the key blow down to the south. Franklin, whose men had bivouacked south of Frederick on Saturday night, was to move at daybreak on Sunday the 14th, sweep west through Burkittsville, then smash through any Confederate force defending Crampton's Gap. Once across the mountain and into Pleasant Valley, Franklin was to either turn north to assist Burnside in his battle with Longstreet, or if Burnside had things well in hand, Franklin was to head west toward the Potomac and cut off any of Longstreet's force that was trying to escape. After getting his hands on the lost order earlier that day, Little Mac was confident as Saturday came to a close that on Sunday he was going to destroy at least a portion of Lee's divided army. Besides relieving the beleaguered garrison at Harper's Ferry, McClellan told Franklin that, quote, My plan is to cut the enemy in two, and beat him in detail. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While McClellan formulated his plans for Sunday, Robert E. Lee up at Hagerstown was growing more and more concerned. On Saturday, east of South Mountain, Jeb Stewart's cavalry had clashed repeatedly with Yankee horsemen advancing west from Frederick. Stewart was also well aware that McClellan's infantry were also now near at hand, closing up on Frederick, but Stewart wasn't too concerned by that development because he thought the Harper's Ferry operation was over and Lee was already starting to reunite the Confederate Army on the other side of South Mountain. By nightfall on Saturday, the Federal cavalry, supported by the vanguard of Reno's Ninth Corps, had pushed Stewart's troopers back through Middletown and all the way to South Mountain. A bit farther south, the Federal horsemen had also pushed the Rebel cavalry back past Burkittsville. There, the Confederates had then set up a defensive line and placed some guns halfway up the mountain slope, astride the road leading up to Crampton's Gap. By that time, Stuart was aware that the Harper's Ferry operation had fallen behind schedule and that the Confederate Army remained divided and vulnerable. The seriousness of the situation began to sink in, and Stuart sent reports to both Robert E. Lee and to D.H. Hill, whose division was nearest to South Mountain at Boonesboro. But Stuart told Hill that just one brigade would be sufficient to hold Turner's Gap. You see, Jeb Stuart believed that the Yankees were surely pushing west on their way to rescue the garrison at Harper's Ferry, and so Stuart believed the bulk of the Union Army would be down at Crampton's Gap. And so when D.H. Hill got Jeb Stuart's message, Hill sent just one brigade to Turner's Gap. When Alfred Colquitt's brigade of Georgians and Alabamians arrived, Stuart conferred briefly with Colquitt, told him there was only a small force of Yankees nearby, and then Stuart rode off south, heading for Crampton's Gap, which he thought would be the critical point for the rebels to defend. That night, however, Alfred Colquitt, alone at Turner's Gap, looked east and saw the area around Middletown lit up with thousands of federal campfires and he realized the enemy force to his front was a far greater threat than Jeb Stuart thought. Colquitt quickly sent word to D.H. Hill that he needed help, and Hill ordered Samuel Garland's North Carolinians and the guns of Captain John Lane's Georgia battery and Captain James W. Bondurant's Alabama battery up the mountain to reinforce Colquitt. D.H. Hill also sent a dispatch to Robert E. Lee informing the Army commander that a large federal force was just on the other side of South Mountain. Lee now fully realized the danger he faced. Later, looking back on the campaign, Lee would say that McClellan, marching west from Frederick, was unexpectedly, quote, advancing more rapidly than was convenient, end quote. That was putting it mildly, for Lee now realized that with his army still divided and with Little Mac having all of a sudden seized the initiative, the Confederates were in serious trouble. Lee was most concerned for Lafayette McClaws, whose troops were part of the Confederate force besieging Harper's Ferry. McClaws was positioned at Maryland Heights, above Harper's Ferry. If the Federals under McClellan punched through Crampton's Gap, they would have seized the back door to Harper's Ferry, and McClaw's force would be in grave danger of being cut off. And so Lee sent repeated messages to McClaw's Saturday night, 
urging him to keep a careful eye to his rear. Lee also decided to turn Longstreet's men around and, at first light on Sunday morning, start them marching from Hagerstown back down to Boonesboro. From Boonesboro, Longstreet could move to either Turner's Gap or Crampton's Gap, depending on circumstances. After sending his urgent messages to McClaws and deciding Longstreet would march back to Boonesboro, Lee sent a dispatch to D.H. Hill, ordering Hill to personally direct the defense of Turner's Gap. On the night of September 13th, therefore, everyone's attention, Union and Confederate, was focused on South Mountain. Before that night, Robert E. Lee had had no intention of defending South Mountain, but now, caught off guard, he was forced to, for fear that McClellan, who was advancing more rapidly than was convenient, would cut the Confederate army in two and defeat it in detail. In his book, The Battle of South Mountain, John David Hoptak writes, quote, Early on the morning of Sunday, September 14th, in that quiet, gray calm between daybreak and sunrise, General D.H. Hill enjoyed a quick cup of coffee before riding from his headquarters near Boonesboro to Turner's Gap at the summit of South Mountain. As he rode, Hill no doubt contemplated the heavy burden now resting on his shoulders. As per Lee's instructions in Special Orders Number 191, Hill's division, composed of five veteran brigades and numbering somewhere between seven and 8,000 men, had been assigned to Boonesboro to serve as the Army's rear guard, end quote. Hoptak then points out that the heavy burden resting on D.H. Hill's shoulders came from Robert E. Lee's urgent note that Hill go in person to oversee the defense of Turner's Gap. Whatever concerns D.H. Hill had as he made his way up to Turner's Gap were magnified when he arrived on the summit about 5.30 a.m. What made Hill's task so daunting was that in order to defend Turner's Gap, he also had to guard three other, smaller passes along a nearly five-mile front. You see, three miles north of Turner's Gap was the little-used Oars Gap, Closer at hand, just a mile north of Turner's Gap, was Frosttown Gap. Then three-quarters of a mile or so to the south of Turner's Gap was Fox's Gap. To defend all of those passes, Hill had on hand only two of his brigades, Colquitt's and Garland's, and two batteries of artillery. D.H. Hill sent several aides galloping back to Boonesboro with orders for his other three brigade commanders. With the Federal garrison at Harper's Ferry still holding out down to the south, Hill was reluctant to completely abandon Boonesboro, so he only sent instructions for G.B. Anderson's brigade of some 1,200 North Carolinians to march to Turner's Gap. Roswell Ripley received orders to detach one regiment, the 4th Georgia, and send it north to Orr's Gap, while the rest of Ripley's brigade, along with the brigade of Robert Rhodes, was to remain at Boonesboro. After sending those orders, Hill quickly surveyed his line, and fearing that Fox's Gap was already in enemy hands, he directed 31-year-old Samuel Garland to move south with orders to hold the pass, quote, at all hazards. Not entirely sure what to expect as he led his brigade toward Fox's Gap, Garland was relieved to find the pass was actually still in Confederate hands. 
You see, Jeb Stuart had left 250 men from Colonel Thomas Rosser's 5th Virginia Cavalry to hold Fox's Gap, supported by two guns commanded by John Pelham. At the top of the mountain at Fox's Gap, where the old Sharpsburg Road crossed the summit, stood the four-acre farm of Daniel Wise, but other than that, the terrain was rough and mostly wooded. Several narrow, crooked roads, really little more than glorified trails, cut through the area. Taken altogether, the terrain and the various approaches to the summit meant Garland had a lot of ground to cover, and he was forced to stretch his brigade thin. Garland's command consisted of five veteran North Carolina regiments, but because of heavy casualties sustained through the spring and summer and recent straggling, it totaled just 1,100 men fit for action at South Mountain. D.H. Hill had also sent Bondurant's Alabama Artillery Battery along to assist Garland at Fox's Gap. Having posted his brigade as best he could, Garland had just started to discuss the situation with Colonel Rosser when, at about 9 a.m., gunfire erupted on the far right of Garland's defensive line. The musketry that erupted on the far right of Garland's defensive line was coming from the 5th North Carolina and the 23rd Ohio. The 23rd Ohio was led into battle at South Mountain by Lieutenant Colonel and future President Rutherford B. Hayes. The 23rd Ohio was leading the advance of Jacob Cox's Kanawha Division, which was spearheading the march of Reno's 9th Corps. Reno's 9th Corps, which, along with Hooker's 1st Corps, composed Burnside's right wing, was leading the Army of the Potomac's push toward Turner's Gap. Remember, McClellan's plan called for this thrust to keep Longstreet occupied, while Franklin's 6th Corps punched through Crampton's Gap half a dozen miles to the south. Franklin's movement was the key to Little Mac's entire plan, since it would drive a wedge between the two parts of Lee's army, while at the same time serving to relieve the beleaguered Union garrison down at Harper's Ferry. McClellan trusted Franklin with that important assignment, and so the army commander had chosen to accompany Burnside in his movement west along the National Road. The Yankees coming up against Samuel Garland's defensive line were ultimately supposed to turn the Confederates out of Turner's Gap by storming up the old Sharpsburg Road, seizing Fox's Gap, then turning north to strike the rebel position at Turner's Gap from the rear. Exactly. Anyway, as part of the sharp fighting at Fox's Gap, Rutherford Hayes had already led the 23rd Ohio in a couple of charges against the stubborn rebel defenders when he was hit in the left arm. Here the future president describes being wounded at South Mountain. Quote, Our men halted at a fence near the edge of the woods and kept up a brisk fire upon the enemy, who were sheltering themselves behind stone walls and fences near the top of the hill beyond a cornfield in front of our position. Just as I gave the command to charge, I felt a stunning blow and found a musket ball had struck my left arm just above the elbow. Fearing that an artery might be cut, I asked a soldier near to me to tie my handkerchief above the wound. I lay down and was pretty comfortable. The enemy's fire was occasionally very heavy. Balls passed near my face and hit the ground all around me. 
The firing continued pretty warm for perhaps fifteen or twenty minutes, when it gradually died away on both sides. After a few minutes' silence, I began to doubt whether the enemy had disappeared or whether our men had gone farther back. I called out, Hello, twenty-third men, are you going to leave your colonel here for the enemy? In an instant, a half-dozen or more men sprang forward to me. The enemy immediately opened fire on them. Our men replied to them, and soon the battle was raging as hotly as ever. Hayes feared that both he and the men who were moving to rescue him would be hit in the renewed combat, so he ordered them to fall back. But then, over Hayes' objections, a lieutenant from Company C, Benjamin Jackson, raced forward, scooped up Hayes, and, quote, laid me down behind a big log and gave me a canteen of water, which tasted so good, end quote. Hayes eventually was taken back to Middletown, where his wound was cared for, and where his wife, Lucy, supervised his long-term recovery after she journeyed east from Ohio to be with him. Hayes would always have a stiff left arm to remind him of the fight at Fox's Gap, but he was fortunate in that an amputation wasn't required. In 1877, he would become the 19th President of the United States. On the opposite side of the hard fighting at Fox's Gap, another officer wasn't so fortunate. At one point, Samuel Garland was with Colonel Thomas Ruffin as Ruffin's 13th North Carolina traded volleys with the 30th Ohio. The colonel grew concerned that the brigade commander was needlessly exposing himself and had just warned Garland of the danger when Ruffin himself was shot through the hip and seriously wounded. Garland glanced down at his stricken subordinate and then turned in the saddle to give orders to a staff officer, but as he was doing so, a bullet tore through his chest. Garland tumbled to the ground, writhing in pain. He was quickly carried from the field, but he was soon dead. With Garland's mortal wounding, Colonel Duncan McRae of the 5th North Carolina assumed command of the brigade. As new waves of federal blue rolled up the mountainside, the pressure on the embattled rebels continued to increase. The fighting grew savage, with bullets flying thick and the smoke of battle obscuring Farmer Wise's cabin and once peaceful fields on the mountaintop. Finally, around 11.30 a.m., the Yankees surged forward and the battered rebel defensive line at last broke. Here, Private Frederick C. Ford of the 20th North Carolina describes the moment the brigade was finally overwhelmed. Quote, At last the enemy charged us three battle lines deep. We resisted stubbornly, retarding their progress in our front, but being unopposed in the intervals between the regiments, they advanced more rapidly and got around both of our flanks and were about to completely surround us, which compelled a hasty retreat with the sure alternative of death or capture. As I pulled my trigger with careful aim, throwing a musket ball and three buckshot into them at not more than twenty yards distant, I could see dimly through the dense, sulfurous smoke, and the line from Shakespeare's Tempest flitted across my brain, Hell is empty, and all the devils are here. Before I could reload, our line broke on both sides of me, and it was a sharp run until we had extracted ourselves. At South Mountain, Ford had actually just returned to the ranks after recovering from a wound he'd received in June. In late 1863, he would transfer to the cavalry. He was captured the following summer, but escaped and served until the war's end. 
By a few minutes after twelve o'clock, after intense fighting and the wrecking of Garland's brigade of North Carolinians, the Federals held Fox's Gap. As the smoke of battle began to drift away and the cries of the wounded took the place of the rattle of musketry and the boom of cannons, a tense lull settled over the battlefield and both sides caught their breath and took stock of the situation. Jacob Cox's Kanawha Division held Fox's Gap, but by that time the Federals were thoroughly exhausted after fighting for three hours to wrestle a difficult position from a determined foe. In addition, rebel prisoners told Cox that D.H. Hill's other brigades, plus Longstreet's entire command, were nearby. And with that, Cox made the decision to halt his advance and instead consolidate his position along the mountaintop and await reinforcements, rather than immediately push north to take Kerner's Gap from the rear. While things at Fox's Gap settled down during the early afternoon hours on Sunday, more Union and Confederate soldiers were making their way to the battlefront, approaching South Mountain from opposite sides. The first to reach the summit were the Confederates of Ripley's and Rhodes' brigades, which D.H. Hill had decided to summon from Boonesboro after all. While Hill sent Robert Rhodes' men to the left, or north of the National Road, he ordered Roswell Ripley's Georgians and North Carolinans south to Fox's Gap. D.H. Hill was no doubt relieved with the arrival of Ripley's and Rhodes' brigades. Hill was more than a little impressed by the sight of what was clearly a vast host of Federals deploying to drive the Confederates off the mountain. He would later say, quote, The marching columns extended as far back as I could see in the distance, but many of the troops had already arrived and were in double lines of battle, and those advancing were taking up positions as fast as they arrived. It was a grand and glorious spectacle. I had never seen so tremendous an army before. Here, four corps were in full view. End quote. Despite the massive blue columns advancing and stacking up in front of him, Hill wrote that, quote, The sight inspired more satisfaction than discomfort. For though I knew that my little force could be brushed away as readily as the strong man can brush to one side the wasp or hornet, I felt that General McClellan had made a mistake, and I hoped to be able to delay him until General Longstreet could come up. You see, D.H. Hill thought Little Mac had made a mistake because, as Jeb Stewart had earlier, Hill believed that McClellan ought to have sent the bulk of his army south to Crampton's Gap in order to have a greater chance at lifting the siege of Harper's Ferry. But with this obviously vast host of Federals deploying to take Turner's Gap, D.H. Hill knew that the longer he could delay McClellan here, the more time it would give Stonewall Jackson to complete the capture of Harper's Ferry and for Lee's divided army to once again be reunited. And that's where we'll leave things for now. Next week, we'll continue with the story of the Battle of South Mountain as fierce combat flares up once again at Fox's Gap there's tough fighting for Frosttown and Turner's Gaps, and we'll see what Franklin was able to do down at Crampton's Gap. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lee's Maverick General, Daniel Harvey Hill by Hal Bridges. 
We think D.H. Hill was one of the more um, interesting Confederate generals, which is saying something since the Confederates had quite a few interesting generals. But there's not that much written about Hill by way of biographies. Bridges is the only one we have on our bookshelf, and it's a good read. It really gives you a pretty clear view of Hill's perspective on things, which, given the fact he was never afraid to speak his mind, his perspective is always uh, interesting. So that's Lee's Maverick General, Daniel Harvey Hill by Hal Bridges. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap things up, just a quick reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we thank them for their permission to use it. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we return to South Fountain. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.